0: This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. We've been talking about uh, 19th and early 20th century Bombay over the last. Uh, Two weeks. Talking about uh, 19th century and earlier, even early 20th century Bombay and recreations really, I mentioned picnic while talking about Salim Ali's uh, early life. I'm reminded of the ways in which food really is an emblem of how cultures and uh, people meet and pass on their impressions over one another. I was talking about this in that episode on falafel. As time passes, really, as a dish is handed down from one generation, one people to another, as it moves across cultures or travel across places, the recipe is often rewritten by those who um, take it up at first. The differences might appear small, but over time the whole new form uh, of the dish might change and uh, it appears something else altogether to its new consumers. New ingredients are often substituted, new methods of preparation are often adopted and Quite often, new names are given, but um, every new addition or every new layer of addition offers us some clues about a new group of consumers, their tastes, their language and their relationship with those from whom they adopt or take up the dish in question. This is very true of of, um, the Anglo-Indian cuisine especially. There are um, several obvious examples of this, but the best is probably cajiri, which is now a rich and quite um, satisfying dish made from flecked fish hard-boiled eggs, rice, butter, spices, and sultana grapes. It now, of course, bears little resemblance to the Indian dish or khichri from which it was derived, but the changes that it went through before, um, before taking its current form, tell us a good deal, not only about the British Raj, but also about um, a history of Western approaches to India more generally. Khichuri or Kejri, as we've been talking about, um, Kejri probably began as Khichdi or Khichdi, which is a traditional Indian dish made from rice and lentils sometimes uh, with rice and millet uh, with mung beans and millets um, quite when and how it uh, first originated is hard to ascertain but it's been around for a very very long time probably um, it took its name from the sanskrit word kichcha it Certainly existed in one form or another as far back as the 4th century BC. Now, its ingredients probably varied between regions depending on the season, the availability of vegetables, or the religion of its consumers. But even at that early date, the foreign visitors noticed it as a staple of the native cuisine. For example, soon after the death of Alexander the Great, uh, Seleucus Nicota, his ambassador of his uh, his former commander to, to the Maurya Empire, noted that a dish of rice and pulses was popular with the people of the subcontinent but it really did not attract a great deal of interest among the foreign visitors until after the Mongol invasions and reopening of the Silk Road. European and North African travelers were anxious, really, to learn whatever they could about Indian customs and food. But their curiosity was not beyond functional. They were happy to to, uh, get familiar with basic ingredients and identify uh, or spot any similarities, if any, with their own cuisine, but nothing more. This, for instance, is how Ibn Battuta, who was writing in in, the 14th century, described the moong bean variant of um, khichdi that he saw um, during his journey from uh, Multan to Delhi in 1333, that's early 14th century. Um, he, he did write something about the cultivation of moong beans and then he noted that um, khichdi is cooked with rice, and accompanied with ghee uh, when eaten. It's called kishri, and uh, people of the region breakfast on it every morning. This is to Indians what barira is to the Moroccans. Later, the Europeans began to develop a more disdainful and condescending approach to the indians as a result travelers came to look at khichdi as a more alien dish they were not terribly curious anymore they ignored similarities with their own cuisine and concentrated on the unfamiliarity much more for instance, um, the Russian uh, traveler um, Afanasy Nikitin, who was writing in the 15th century, described khichdi rather scornfully. In fact, on one occasion, he used it to illustrate the peculiarity of Hindu dietary rules. And on another occasion, he equated it with horse feed. Now, rarely did early modern travelers um, bother themselves too closely into the more varied and diverse diffusion of khichdi? Nikitin, for instance, didn't bother to check that by the 15th century, it was not an exclusively Hindu dish. As a matter of fact, Abul Fazl mentions in Ayn-e-Akbari um, the popularity of khichdi among Muslims. There is evidence of khichdi also being a favorite of Buddhists. As a matter of fact, khichdi could no longer be thought of as a single dish. The subtle variations of the past had resulted in a range of various regional recipes. In Mughal Bengal, for instance, it was often eaten with an oil-based pickle. In Gujarat, it was cooked with cumin, turmeric, and curry leaves. But of course, Nikitin has absolutely no interest in taking khichdi back home. He would have probably hated the idea. He described it frankly as bad and had absolutely no desire to taste it ever again. That scenario partly changed with the appearance of British colonialism. Now, the British colonialists, at least the early British colonialists, did not exactly love India or Khichdi, but they were forced, as a matter of fact, to face the need to govern. They had to learn the language. They had to make themselves familiar with the local customs. If they were to be dismissive of Indian culture, the task of governance was going to be increasingly harder. How could you expect to collect taxes, administer justice, or perform any other work unless of course you were familiar with the customs and manners of the people so whether they liked it or not the early company servants began to learn indian language or pick up indian habits and even developed uh, a soft corner for indian cuisine including the khichdi but The khichuris served in their homes could not have been the same as that eaten in the street, rather it had to be a hybrid. It emerged out of um, a relationship, a dialectic really, a dialogue even, between Indian cooks and the wives of company officials. So. While the wives believed that dining remained an essential component of British identity and uh, marked their basic difference with their subjects, um, they insisted on adopting the recipe to their own tastes. So rice remained the basis of the dish, but they decided to add hard-boiled eggs and pulses were replaced with flecked or smoked fish. Now, of course, probably the Bengalis also had some kind of a previous tradition of eating fish along with khichdi, but that was cooked separately. This is the first time that it was mixed with the basic ingredients. The new dish, in its new form obviously, found its way back to Britain and of course now it acquired a new name, Kejiri. One of the earliest recipes um, is found in a book published in 1790 or so by Stiffener Malcolm. Now, Malcolm spent most of her life in Dumfrieshire. Her family, however, traveled widely, including uh, to India. And thanks to them, that kajri found um, its way into her recipe book. But there, again, it became a different dish. Many of the ingredients used by the company servants or nabobs, simply could not be found in Scotland. So um, stiffener Malcolm was now um, able to replace some of those with local produce, such as haddock. Though unknown in India, um, now it could be purchased rather cheaply along the quays of Solway firth, and um, it had the additional uh, merit of being naturally flaky. Now, she also substituted others with more exotic alternatives, and those substitutions bore witness to the ever-growing rich of British commercial interests. So, in the absence of curry leaves, for example, Malcolm used uh, cane pepper, which, It was, of course, known to the British Isles since the 16th century, was still predominantly grown in South America. Now after the the dissolution of the East India Company and uh, the takeover of India's command by the British Crown, um, rather directly, Kajiri began to feature more and more regularly in uh, various recipe books by the end of the 19th century, it became something of a steeple. It was viewed as a thrifty dish which uh, was not expensive or ostentatious and which could be put together with locally caught fish or with the leftover food. But um, the British Raj Was no longer dominated by middle class merchant adventurers. It was now um, looked after by the British elites. Cajery, too, over time, increasingly became an upper class dish. So it was now made with richer and more distinctively British ingredients, such as salmon or veal. By the early 20th century, Now, cajury gradually was associated with aristocratic texts, not just with aristocratic texts, but also with ostentation, extravagance, and even decadence. Of course, uh, since the end of the British Raj, cajury has uh, ceased to be the exclusive food of an imperial elite its ingredients have been democratized, and more typically Indian Indian ingredients have been added once again, cumin, turmeric, curry powder, and so on. But beneath the surface of these modern recipes, it's still possible to glimpse the traces of its earlier versions. And these additions, as we were discussing, were marked by curiosity, yet others were marked by negative prejudice. But all of these additions and changes bear testimony to the West's long and complicated relationship with India. We will return to this question of uh, complicated relationships with various players, various histories and various pasts once again in the next episode of history chatter till then this is Anirban see you next week